So you ready for another season of House of Frankenstein? Yeah, I'm ready for another season of 80 pages of notes. So it's back to your podcasting again, is it? Another season of gentlemen ghosts popping in and interrupting us. Yes, Craddock, we're just about to start recording our first episode. And what horrific moving picture are you discussing this time? The Invisible Man from 1933. So another ghost picture, eh? They never get those right. No, it's about a scientist who takes a drug, turns invisible, and runs around naked and terrorizes people. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Wait, he takes his clothes off and is naked underneath? No one sees him, but he's out running about with no knickers? Yeah, it's kind of sick if you think about it. Sounds like a splendid idea. (laughs) Whoa, 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 Craddock. Put your pants back on. No one wants to see that or... Not see that. Just put your pants back on. Great. Now he's going to be more pervy than usual. Yes, I'm free. Free to traipse about in my hole together. Huzzah! Hey, at least he left on his top hat. Oh. There's a creepy old house. A domicile of weirdness, horror, and thrills Where you never have to wait in line It's the house of Franklin Stein A strange couple there and ghosts a peculiar place where the sun doesn't shine it's the house of Franklin Stein Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Chris and welcome back to the house of Franklin Stein. Believe it or not this is our 10th annual house of Franklin Stein series. We've got a great lineup for you including a couple of Universal Monster Classics we somehow never got around to. So without further ado, let's get into our first film, The Invisible Man from 1933. The Invisible Man was released November 13th, 1933. Just missed it! Missed it by two weeks. Gosh, come on. Uh, Based on a novel by H.G. Wells, of course, screenplay by R.C. Sheriff, and directed by James Whale. In the cast, we had Claude Rains as Dr. Jack Griffin, a.k.a. The Invisible Man, Gloria Stewart as Flora Cranley, William Harrigan as Dr. Arthur Kemp, Henry Travers as Dr. Cranley, Una O'Connor as Jenny Hall, Forrester Harvey as Herbert Hall, Holmes Herbert as Chief of Police, E.E. Clive as Constable Jaffers, Dudley Diggs as Chief Detective, Harry Stubbs as Inspector Bird, Donald Stewart as Inspector Lane, and Merle Tottenham as Millie. Right up to the top of his head, all round his ears. Flora's worried about Griffin. I had a terrible feeling last night. I felt he was in desperate trouble. He meddled in things men should leave alone. Not the slightest clue. That's where the clues are. He wasn't leaving anything to chance. There must be a way back. God knows there's a way back. Are you doing help? Just leave me alone. It's the stranger with the goggles. He's gone mad. 
you to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. <laughs> Let me see your madness when you're peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. But why? Why do it, Griffin? Just a scientific experiment at first, to do something no other man in the world had done. Suddenly I realized the power I held, the power to rule, to make the world grovel at my feet. You know who the Invisible Man is, Doctor. Where is Dr. Griffin? What's the good of concealing it? Oh, come and stay with us. Let's fight this thing out together. Police, quickly. The Invisible Man is in my house. He's mad. He's killed a man tonight. Believe me, as surely as the moon will set and the sun will rise, I shall kill you tomorrow night. The secret of invisibility lies there in my books. Don't you see what it means? Power. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Even the moon's frightened of me. The whole world's frightened to death. I'll lay traps that even an invisible man can't pass. The air station's now. Watch the wall. Help! Help! He's here! He's here! <laughs> here we go gathering nuts and may on a cold and frosty morning. A mysterious bandaged man trudges through the snow toward the Lion's Head Inn in the small English village of Iping. Arriving there, he demands a room and complete privacy. He becomes annoyed with the owners and patrons almost instantly who ponder about their peculiar guest. This man is Dr. Jack Griffin, research scientist in the field of food preservation who is looking for a quiet place to develop an antidote for the condition he has inflicted upon himself. Unaware of where Griffin has disappeared to, his fiancée, Flora, begs her father, Dr. Cranley, Jack's employer, to help her find him. Cranley's other assistant, Dr. Arthur Kemp, also has designs on Flora and tells her Griffin only cared for his research, not for her. A week or so later at the Lion's Head Inn, Griffin has become increasingly angry with the innkeepers, Herbert and Jenny Hall. He slams the door on Jenny, and when Herbert comes to collect the rent and throw him out, Griffin throws him down the stairs. The police are called, and when a local constable and a group of the pub regulars confront Griffin, he angrily answers their questions about just what is ailing him. He removes his bandages to reveal nothing underneath. He laughs maniacally as he disrobes, and they chase him about the room. Now naked and completely invisible, he escapes and wreaks havoc, first in the inn's pub, then through the town as he runs toward the countryside. Unaware of the events in Iping, Cranley and Kemp discover some of Griffin's notes, indicating he had created an Exler using the drug Monocan. Taken from an Indian flower, Cranley explains Monocan can bleach the color out of everything, but prove dangerous and unstable, causing madness when injected into living creatures. Kemp learns firsthand how mad Griffin has become when he sneaks into his home. He orders him to get him some bandages and clothes, and then sets about telling him how he plans to develop an antidote to return himself to normal, but use the invisibility formula to conquer the world. Kemp is to be his partner and has no say in the matter, as Griffin threatens to kill him if he doesn't cooperate. Kemp drives Griffin back to the Lion's Head Inn, where a police inspector has gathered everyone who encountered this so-called invisible man to debunk their stories. Griffin retrieves his book of notes and on the way out, runs the townspeople away in panic and murders the inspector. The Invisible Man is now public enemy number one and the entire area is alerted to his crimes. 
Back at home with Griffin apparently asleep, Kemp phones Cranley and tells him of Griffin's return and his identity as the Invisible Man. Cranley advises him to wait and not call the police, but Kemp does so before Cranley and Flora arrive. Flora tries to reason with Griffin, but he monologues about world domination once more, saying he did all this for her to prove he was successful and worthy of her. Griffin notices the police sneaking up on the grounds. He disrobes and leaves through the window, but not before swearing he'll kill Kemp for his betrayal. Griffin slips past the police and in the next day wreaks the havoc he promised, robbing a bank and even derailing a train, killing hundreds of people. Despite Cranley trying to protect his name, Kemp reveals the Invisible Man is Griffin. He asks for police protection and they pledge to do so, while also using him as bait to capture Griffin. Despite some clever plans, Griffin manages to avoid all other traps and is in Kemp's car when he thinks he has successfully driven away to the safe countryside. Griffin ties him up in his car and sends it careening down a hill, off a cliff, and into the rocks below, killing his former partner. The police continue their manhunt, but an elderly farmer is the one who finds Griffin when he notices a pile of straw in his barn moving as Griffin breathes heavily in his sleep. wonder if he snored. Maybe. Mm. The police surround the barn and set it ablaze, forcing Griffin out into the newly fallen snow. The police shoot toward the advancing footprints and Griffin's invisible body falls, leaving an imprint in the snow. Griffin is taken to a hospital, but the doctor's prognosis isn't good. Flora is at his bedside when Griffin tells how he knew she would come. Griffin dies, and with him, the results of his experiments. His body reappears as we fade to black. Yes. Uh, Boris Karloff was originally slated to star in this film as the Invisible Man, but he had a contract dispute with Carl Lamley. Uh, basically, Universal promised him more money if he waited for a raise in a previous negotiation. He did so, and then when that the time came back to renegotiate and get a raise, they still didn't want to give him one, so he walked away. And this was after Boris Karloff had made them a crap ton of money and basically saved the studio. Uh, probably one of the reasons why Karloff was a founder of the Screen Actors Guild, which of course is in the news right now right, with right. the strike and everything, but Boris Karloff was one of the, the key founders of the uh, Screen Actors Guild. Uh, James Well was aware of Claude Rains and viewed a screen test that Rains had bombed, but he wanted him for the part due to the intellectual sound of his voice. Mm. Apparently, Claude Rains said that was the worst screen test he ever did, but it's still, James Well saw it and still loved his voice. Carl Lamley was hesitant since Rains was an unknown stage actor. He suggested Well ask his friend and frequent collaborator Colin Clive, who of course was Dr. Henry Frankenstein in Well's Frankenstein films. Well did, but begged Clive to turn it down since he really wanted Claude Rains. Clive wanted to return to England for vacation, so the part went to Rains. Despite the reservations, Rains gets top billing above the title in the opening credits. Now, I think Colin Clive has a very great voice, too. So I think he would have worked, but I don't think he would have worked as good as Claude Rains. Mm. So, uh, The Invisible Man was written by H.G. Wells and originally serialized in the magazine Pearson's Weekly in 1897. It was collected in novel form that same year. Wells was already acclaimed for writing The Time Machine and The Island of Dr. Moreau. The popularity of The Invisible Man on top of the other works garnered Wells the title The Father of Science Fiction. Wells was still alive in 1933 and in fact lived to see all of Universal's Invisible Man films be produced. His contract gave him script approval for the film. Apparently, Universal forgot about this, as early scripts had the movie veering wildly from the source material, with one treatment even having it set on Mars. Wow. Screenwriter R.C. Sheriff asked for a copy of the novel, and Universal didn't even have one. 
He had to locate one in a secondhand bookstore and found the novel was fairly perfect for adaptation. And anybody who's read the book and seen the movie know it's much closer to the source material than Universal's adaptations of Dracula and especially Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah, and I read the book, you know, I haven't reread it in a long time, but it was one of the books that I read when I was in middle school and high school because, you know, it counted as a classic piece of literature, but also something I wanted to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sheriff was uncredited in contributions to the screenplay for well, it was earlier The Old Dark House and later The Bride of Frankenstein. He wrote the play Journey's End, which Whale directed on Broadway and then adapted to film. He also penned the screenplay for Wales' The Road Back. Both Journey's End and The Road Back are World War I uh, dramas. He also did uncredited work on Dracula's Daughter. So, R.C. Sheriff was all over the Universal Monster Horror ones. This is like the only one where he gets like full credit, though. Okay. Well, of course, had made a name for himself by directing first Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge, and then hit the stratosphere with Frankenstein. He followed it up with The Old Dark House, and then this film. He made one last horror movie with The Immortal Bride of Frankenstein. Which, of course, we've covered those films. So, that's up The Old Dark House. We haven't covered that one yet. With The Old Dark House, Well began to inject his singular wit into his films. The humor in Frankenstein was mostly provided by the blustery old Baron Frankenstein, but The Old Dark House had a whole family of eccentric nuts for him to play around with. Hmm. Yeah. Here, Well has a ball with the crowd at the end and the townspeople, police, and pretty much everyone but the main cast who knew Jack Griffin before he went and disappeared. Literally. Hans Romheld goes uncredited for the music, which I think is a real shame because there's not a lot of music throughout the film, but the opening score is very powerful, mysterious, and menacing. And then you don't hear the score for like like another 75 minutes or so, and then it kicks back in or however long this movie is. It's like a little, well, it's about 70-something minutes. So you don't hear it for like another hour, and then it kicks back in toward the end. So, But it's very, very powerful. Uh, so we, as we said in the synopsis, we start off with a very moody, snowy shot of the English countryside as we and Griffin head toward the Lion's Head Inn. Not the only film we'll cover this year where strangers bust in on an English countryside inn. No. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the end, we meet some familiar faces. Forrester Harvey plays the innkeeper, Herbert Hall. He played the squeamish policeman Twiddle in The Wolfman, so he reunites with Claude Rains in that film. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Claude Rains played Sir John Talbot in The Wolfman. Right. And, honestly, this this is the first House of Frankenstein season that we're going to have where we don't have a movie with Lon Chaney Jr. Right. I just, you know, we did the Mummy movies last year, and they're kind of very similar, so I didn't want to do two this year again. Mm-hmm. And we went through all the Wolfman films, and so now we're kind of, you know, I, there's still other Lon Chaney movies we can cover, but as far as like classic universal monster movies, we're right. kind of out of them other than those two mummy films. And so I kind of feel good that we've got at least got his on-screen dad in here. Yeah, there's a connection. <laughs> there's some continuity there. Uh, and of course, how could you miss Una O'Connor playing Jenny Hall, Harvey's wife, the single most controversial person in the Universal Monster <laughs> canon. Most love her or absolutely loathe her. But James Well was so fond of her, not only did he crack up at her antics while directing the film, when he passed away, he left her as one of the beneficiaries of his will. Dang. Yes. And she passed away like two years after him, but still. So what did you think of her in this film? I mean, you always know she's going to be a nut whenever she shows up on screen. Starts so, screaming know, and yeah. wailing and everything. I, I personally think she's less intrusive here 
this film is full of broad characters throughout, so she doesn't quite stick out like she did in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Of course, there she was basically like the Greek chorus, but she was a very, you know, irritating Greek chorus in that film. Here she fits in with the rest of the crowd, and mm-hmm. they can kind of... And they react to how annoying she is. I mean, her husband even tells her to shut up after he's been injured. Yeah. And she's falling to pieces, so. Whale pulls one of his best tricks, the stilted jump cut, where we get progressively closer to the face of our monster as we're introduced to him. Just like we met Karloff and Frankenstein and how we'll be introduced to Elsa Lancaster's bride in Bride of Frankenstein. Right. So he's got, he's got a way to introduce us to these monsters. Uh, and, of course, we hear that unique, wonderful voice of Claude Rains, which, along with the groundbreaking effects, is, to my opinion, the true star of this film. Uh, despite his father being a successful English stage actor, Rains had trouble with his diction as a young boy. He stuttered, and he, is, he had a very thick Cockney accent. He forced himself to conquer it, and boy, did it pay off. <laughs> By the time Rains had appeared in The Wolfman, as we mentioned, he had become one of the most versatile actors in the business, able to segue between lead roles like The Invisible Man to strong and memorable supporting roles. He'd made one forgettable silent film before this, but this was actually his first real motion picture. Mm-hmm. So, Rising through the U.S. theater ranks, Reigns had served in a Scottish regiment in World War One. Woohoo, Scottish! Yeah, <laughs> afterwards, he taught at the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, where two of his most famous and grateful students were Sir Lawrence Olivier and Sir John Gilgood. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he was their teacher. After returning to a successful Broadway career in the late 1920s, Reigns got the role of the Invisible Man, and Hollywood kept him busy for the next four decades. He famously played Prince John in The Adventures of Robin Hood, also with Uno O'Connor, and perhaps his most famous role, Captain Renault in Casablanca. He was constantly in demand for film, television, and stage work until his death in 1967. In his spare time, he enjoyed life on a farm in Pennsylvania. In fact, his daughter Jennifer often told people that her father was a farmer. She had never seen one of his films until he took her to a revival of The Invisible Man in 1950. Much like this opening scene, Reigns was bundled up due to the cold, but the ticket taker recognized his voice. And, I mean, think about that. Yeah. So, you know. I, like one, I, can't, I can't do Claude Reigns, but I'd like one ticket for, you know, two yeah. tickets for The Invisible Man. Yeah, I'm not going to even try too hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the ticket taker recognized his voice and offered him and his daughter free entry, which he refused. Inside, he began telling his daughter how they made the film, and apparently the audience stopped watching the movie, gathered around Reigns, and listened to his anecdotes. So, <laughs> It's kind of like one of those deals where they're like up on the stage yeah. talking about the movie, but it was not planned that way. So, Now, I love the fake nose and hair Griffin has on here, even though he's wearing a hat. He puts some thought into this, trying to make himself look like Maybe someone with a facial injury. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that. Early on, This, you know, he's got kind of like two different iconic bandaged looks, and this is the early look where he's trying to make it look like he actually has a face underneath Yeah, there. and there's hair, and yeah. Right, right. He asks for a room, and they tell him they only have rooms to lent in the spring, but he isn't having it, and they don't argue much with him. Would you? Yeah. You would? Yeah, of course you would. You'd argue with the fence post, but... <laughs> keeps your life interesting. <laughs> he tells Jenny he doesn't wish to be disturbed, but they don't really seem to get that, do they? No. No. <laughs> I mean, they just keep coming, you know. Just, I'm like, he paid for his, you know, once you've decided, okay, you're going to stay here. 
But they just walk in his room willy-nilly, he, you know. And apparently they don't have a key to the lock, so they can't lock the room. Yeah. He asked, he asked them about that, and they don't have it, so... Uh, the locals all ponder what happened to him. Some, some suspect he's an escaped convict. Others guess that he's horribly disfigured. Mm-hmm. So, he asks for food, which Jenny brings, but the barmaid, Millie, forgot the mustard, so Jenny just barges in with it, as you said. Yeah. And Griffin quickly pulls his napkin over his lower face, which now has no bandages. He screams at her that he wanted to be left alone. She leaves the mustard, and we briefly see a side shot, giving us our first glimpse of just what is going on with Griffin. He drops the napkin when she leaves, and the lower half of his face is gone. Just... Yep, there's nothing there. Uh, it's so quick, I wonder if some people even caught it the first time. Right. I mean, now we know what to expect, you know, but it was kind of like one of those, like, you know, modern movies, horror movies especially, do like a quick little tease, like, oh my God, what was that in the corner? Yeah. And then later it full on appears, you know, type thing. It's, it's incredibly well done. Of course, like most of the effects in this film, it just it holds up great, as we'll discuss. Uh, then we shift to the lab of Dr. Cranley. Cranley and his daughter, Flora, were inventions for this movie by Sheriff, so they were not in the book. Okay. Playing Dr. Cranley is Henry Travers, who is undoubtedly most famously known for playing Clarence the Angel in It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. which you knew that right off the mm-hmm. bat. I thought that was him, but I looked it up just mm-hmm. to make sure. So, His daughter, Flora, is played by Gloria Stewart, who had previously worked with Whale in the old dark house. She had one of the most protracted career comebacks of all time when she was nominated for an Oscar at age 86 for the role of Elderly Rose in James Cameron's Titanic. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Kemp shows up and he's much more concerned about moving in on Flora than making her feel better about Griffin. He's all like, he'll never love you as much as his test tubes. I mean, that is harsh, dude. I mean... (laughs) He, you know... He's pining, yes. obviously. And we'll see how much he's pining later. We'll, have... well, he has her picture on in his study. I know. You I... know, I'm like, dude. That's somebody else's fiance. Yeah. I mean, what happens when Griffin comes over? Does he hide it or did, when she, I mean. Does Excuse he... the coarse language, but that's definitely OPP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You love me. Yes. Uh, Kemp is played by William Harrigan, best known for this film, and The Farmer's Daughter. Reigns had worked with him on stage and may have suggested him to fill the role when another, more famous character actor dropped out when the unknown Reigns got top billing. I don't remember who that character actor was. Rudy Bilmer mentioned it in the the, uh, commentary, which is a good commentary, by the way. You should listen to it. But uh, film historian Rudy Bilmer. But uh, it was somebody that nobody remembers nowadays, but apparently it was a fairly big deal at the time. And he got his underwear in a wad because Claude Rains got top billing and left. So uh, with this scene, you may notice Sheriff is mixing in some similarities to the characters in Wells' Frankenstein. Uh, Griffin is the scientist who has run away from his friends and family to work on his experiments, like Henry Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Flora pines for her lost fiancé and begs for help finding him, just like Elizabeth did. Dr. Kemp is Griffin's friend, but openly volleys to take his place in Flora's heart like Victor did with Elizabeth. Although Victor was much more, he he didn't shy away from the fact that he loved her, but he also wasn't totally trying to creep in on her mm-hmm. either. Cranley is the mentor figure who worries about his young charge like Dr. Waldman. So, back to the lion's head in, and Griffin is frantic to get back repeatedly. I must get back. I must. You know, uh, Jenny does knock with lunch. But Griffin tells her no. She comes in anyway, and he slams the door in her face and knocks her fine silver everywhere and then starts the screeching. Yes. 
Wow. Uh, even for a hysterical person like Jenny, was this worth all that screaming? No. no. <laughs> oh, and this is something, I mean, this is just a just an aside that I noticed at the time. Okay. But at the bar, and I can't remember exactly if it's when he ta- she takes up his meal or what, but anyway, or when he sh- she first shows him the room, but I thought it was interesting that they're in a little, the little alcove underneath the staircase, you have the women of the village enjoying a drink. They're not in with the men, yep. and, but they are having a drink. And I mean, I know it doesn't have anything to do with the story at all. I'm just saying that that was, yeah. you know. I mean, that I noticed you You just see them there when she, I think she first takes them to the room. Okay, I couldn't remember. And if then it was, you don't really see them there again. But is, you don't. But I'm just, yeah. you know, it was just something to note. The women weren't know? allowed to... To be in the pub with the men. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Griffin throws his elixir across the room. Uh, of course, this shows he's very temperamental. Then Jenny goes downstairs, browbeats her husband to go up and evict Griffin due to his attitude and him being behind on the rent. So Herbert goes up to evict him, but Griffin takes a different tact and begs Herbert to let him stay and finish his experiments. When Herbert actually dares to touch his equipment, Griffin actually throws him out and down the stairs. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. Then Jenny really starts wailing. Now that I can kind of understand. I'm just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And even though he's got a head wound and probably a few broken bones, even Herbert tells her to shut up. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious. The local crowd grows and grabs a policeman, Constable Jaffers, who is the prototypical Cockney Bobby, played by E.E. Clive in his mustache. Mm, Yes. Yeah, Clive would later play the blustery Burgermaster, in Wales Bride of Frankenstein. And I, I really love this guy. I just I, lo- I love his dialogue. He's, he's, he's a lot of fun. Uh, Jaffers and a group of the in crowd go upstairs and burst into Griffin's room. Then we get, without a doubt, the most famous scene in this film. Mm-hmm. Griffin is full-on nuts here, and Rain's dialogue is dripping with intense hatred for every one of the townsfolk who've been gawking at him the whole time he was trying to save himself. Stop where you are. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, all right. Come on. Get hold of him. Lock him up. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Huh? How do you like that, eh? <laughs> so he takes off his nose and goggles and throws them at him. And then he starts unwrapping his bandages, revealing no head beneath. And here's where we first really get to see the genius special effects of John P. Fulton. Yes. Uh, for the close-up on Griffin's head from the front, there was a dummy with Rain's hands reaching up and taking off the nose and the goggles. And from the back, it was actually Rain's wearing black velvet from head to toe. Really? Unwrap- okay. Unwrapping the bandages, and then he, or in some cases a stand-in, would wear the black velvet suit and a large helmet encasing his entire head which was then shot against a black velvet background. The shots were then composited with the footage from the normal sets in the traveling matte method. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a very early version of green screen, blue screen. Okay. Know. 
The helmet had air hoses that allowed him to breathe, but they were quite loud, and Fulton and Whale had a hard time directing the people wearing it. They basically had to yell at him. And Reigns had been gassed in World War One and had a fear of suffocation as well as nearly a, a nearly useless eye. He was like 90% blind in one eye. Really? Yeah, as a result of all that. It also affected his vocal cords, giving him his famous raspy voice. So that's kind of why he sounds that like that. Uh, e. E. Clive, on the other hand, just really pours on the accent. I he my favorite line in this movie is he's all eating away. <laughs> just I just love that. Uh, the men, including Jaffers, all run out when Reigns throws the bandages at him, and lets out that blood curdling high pitched laughter. Uh, Jaffers gathers himself downstairs and realizes if they let him get undressed, they'll never catch him. He even says he's invisible. That's what he is. So Jaffers is actually a bit smarter than we thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't think he's some kind of ghost or demon or some such. No. He just, you know, he's underneath. There's nothing there, but, you know. Uh, so they go back up for more, and I love Griffin's dialogue about giving the country bumpkins something to talk about. Nice bedtime story for the kids, too, if they want it. And he's taking his pants off with no underwear underneath. True. <laughs> so... Invisible Commando sounds like one of the later sequels. <laughs> Christopher. Uh, they find him with just his shirt on, cackling, and they say, put the handcuffs on him. How could I handcuff a blooming shirt? Which, you know, he they chase him around the chair while Griffin cackles. I mean, what are they going to grab onto is what I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, that would be one way to... He's got the shirt on, just punch below it. Yeah. I mean, that'll take him down. Yeah. <laughs> The audience at the time must have had their jaw on the floor when he was running around the yeah. shirt. I mean, it, it still looks great. It really holds up. Now, Mark Hamill has cited Reign's Invisible Man as a major influence on his portrayal of the Joker. And you can definitely hear it, particularly in this scene. Yes. Because Rain goes from murderous rage to completely maniacal amusement in seconds. When Griffin tells them how easy it is with just a few chemicals... And flesh and blood and bone just fade away. It sounds particularly like Hamill to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, you can definitely hear it. By now, he's out of his shirt and completely naked. Uh, movie historian and horror expert J. David Scowl has theorized that the Invisible Man films were and are popular partially because the lead character is always running around in the nude. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of being able to break convention and do taboo things that's appealing to people. So, take your clothes off, disappear, and just cause all sorts of havoc. And being naked in public with yeah. no consequences. Yeah, yeah. I bet you, you this... Know, naked? That buck naked with the cheese sandwich? Yeah. Well, you'd probably see the cheese sandwich, though. Well, oh, that's It'd be floating true. through the air. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, he, he tells them all that's needed is this elixir under the skin for a month, and he tells them how powerful an invisible man can be. An invisible man can rule the world. No one will see him come. No one will see him go. He can hear every secret. He can rob, rape, and kill. A few years later, after the Hayes Code, there's no way they'd get away with that rape line. No. Uh, and he throws the elixir at Jenny's picture on the wall as he says it, which is kind of like, Ugh, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he acts like he's escaping through the window by pulling the curtains and opening it, but he's tricked them, and now he makes his way to the door after he chokes out poor Jaffers. But he doesn't kill him. He yeah. just knocks him out. He's down to the bar sliding mugs across the counter, smashing everything, and sending Jenny up on the table screaming, of Of course. course. Yeah. Then he's out in the streets causing mayhem as he goes. He could have very easily just run away silently, but no, he's going to have some fun with this. Right. Uh, He breaks windows, Ernest T. Bass style, 
He steals an old man's hat, knocks over a baby carriage. See, I know. I'm like, dang. Yeah, then he steals a bike, and that's a neat trick. The bike was on a track with wires above keeping it upright. Uh, and the wire work in this film is really phenomenal because, I mean, I never did see a wire. I mean, think about this. 1933. This yeah. was 90 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's special effects of movie that came out this summer that haven't, didn't held up past like five minutes. No. Uh-uh. You know, so this still holds up. He then throws the bike at the people and runs off cackling. And I love Rain's commentary as he's doing all this, too. I wonder, he's just, you know, he's got these little lines mm-hmm. of dialogue. I wonder how much of that was ad-libbed after the facts. Right. Or how much of it was scripted. It'd be interesting to see the script. Uh, then we're back to Cranley's lab, and he and Kemp discover some of Griffin's notes, indicating he used monocane. Cranley exposits on the dangers of monocane, and we then learn just why Griffin is a raving madman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also an invention of sheriffs, as well as Griffin was just an angry man who felt used and abused by society, unseen by society. His condition just added fuel to his already smoldering emotional fire. Right. So, the model cane makes him more sympathetic, which is important since they have given him a fiance and a mentor figure who are obviously concerned about him. So, true. Later at Kemp's home, and of course, he's got that picture of Flora up on his mantle. Um, dude. <laughs> he's listening to the radio, and the news media is positing this was some form of mass hysteria and iping rather than, believe they, than someone believing that. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's more unbelievable? Mm-hmm. He obviously was listening to Fox News. Oh! Okay. A completely invisible and naked Griffin sneaks in and greets his colleague rather threateningly, though. He wants to warm by the fire, and, you know, who can blame him? He's buck naked with no cheese sandwich, as right? we said, running around in the snowy woods in the winter. I mean, he even says, it's a little, you know, it's a cold. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, I bet you one thing's invisible for sure. Uh, there's. Oh, <laughs> There's some neat effect work with the rocking chair. It moves forward, and Kemp sees the seat go down as if weight were on it. It rocks and pulls closer. Griffin even lights a match and then a cigarette. Most of these effects were done with wire work, but, of course, uh, the one with the cigarette was done with the black velvet method. Mm -hmm. Uh, Griffin knows Kemp is freaked out, so he asks him for bandages, dark glasses, pajamas, and a dressing gown. We then get probably the Invisible Man's most iconic look mm-hmm. here. This is what they usually make the action figures out of you know, in that look. Did, have you gotten the new Mego Invisible Man or not? I've got the Mego. I don't have the uh, the NECA. Okay. And the okay. first NECA one's from the early with the nose and everything. Okay. So it's it's early. So they'll probably do the smoking jacket. I've got the, the Super 7 in the... Oh, no, not Super 7. The... Uh, the Funko when they were doing them. Oh, I've got okay. the Funko in the smoking jacket. Yeah, I get those two confused, but I don't know if they have they done the Super Seven. I stopped buying those that much because they were really pricey for what they were. Like for fifteen more bucks, I can get a NECA figure that's got a ton more accessories mm-hmm. and much better sculpting and mm-hmm. detailing and you know screen accurate looking. So anyway, uh, <laughs> when Griffin begins to talk to Kemp in his new clothes, he almost seems normal for a moment. There's still that air of desperation and menace, but it's below the surface a bit. He tells them he began experimenting in secret five years ago. Uh-huh. So this has been going on for quite some time. He had a thousand experiments and a thousand failures, but one day he hit it. He says he had to leave before Kemp and the others could see how he was slowly fanning away, so he went to Iping. And Kemp asked him why, and he says it was just an experiment at first, but he wanted to do something no one else had done. But he then says... The drugs I took seemed to light up my brain. 
So even he knows that it changed his brain, you know? Yeah, and this is when we get the full-on monologue that shows just how far Griffin really is. Suddenly I realized the power I held, the power to rule, to make the world grovel at my feet. <laughs> we'll soon put the world right now, Kemp. You and I. I? You mean I must have a partner, Kemp? A visible partner to help me in the little things? You're my partner, Kemp. We'll begin with a reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. We might even wreck a train or two. Just these fingers round a signalman's throat. That's all. Griffin, for heaven's sake! Do you want me to take these off? No, no. Very well, then. And I love how he casually mentions his reign of terror and starting with just a few murders. Yeah. He even mentions wrecking a train. So Just I'll, casually. Yeah. But I'll give him one thing. When he commits, he commits. I mean, he's got a, he's got a bucket list, and he pretty much checks them all off in his yeah. movies. So, of course, he wants Kemp to be his visible partner, or stooge, actually. Mm-hmm. Kemp isn't having it, but is too cowardly to do anything about it. He could have at least tried to take him out here while he's visible. I mean... He did tell him earlier he was strong, and we kind of see that later. So do you think the drug increased his strength at all? Or That's what I wonder, if that wasn't a side effect. Because he, know? I mean, I'll just or go ahead. an added effect, rather. He grabs a policeman by his legs and swings him around. Yeah. A grown man. I know, I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can do that with a kid, like a little kid when you're playing around with him. But like a grown man, you yeah, have to be pretty I mean, strong. I would think that that would be an added effect. Not a side effect, but an added effect. Yeah. He tells Kemp they're going back to Iping to get his notebooks, and he mentions it's 15 miles, so he walked naked in the snow and cold for 15 miles. Shoo! Yeah, unless he stole another bicycle or something. Yeah, he must be mad to have survived that. He does tell him to put a warm rug in the car. It's cold outside when you have to go about naked. At the Lion's Head Inn, Inspector Bird is getting testimony from the townspeople and not believing one word of it. Obviously, this guy would be a climate change denier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bird is played by Harry Stubbs, who also appeared in The Mummy's Hand, which we covered last year, The Wolfman, where he played the priest, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Another familiar face is famous character actor and three-time Oscar winner Walter Brennan in an uncredited role as the bicycle owner. He's known for films such as Rio Bravo and Red River and the TV series The Guns of Will Sonnet and The Real McCoys. Unfortunately, it's now well known he was a rather unsavory bigot and radical conservative. Mm. So, yeah, he was not a nice person. So, when Griffin sneaks upstairs and retrieves the books, the wire work is exceptionally well done. I mean, of course, in scenes where he's invis- invisible and the props move, no actor stand in is needed. Right. Uh, the objects have subtle extra movements that sell the illusion, like when he picks the books are picked up. And then he slides them over top of one another to kind of shuffle them. Yeah. And, and, and straighten them out as if Griffin had them by hand and was like, you know, getting them in a straight pile. Bird is telling everyone he's going to officially call the whole thing a hoax. And as he begins to sign his decree, the Invisible Man moves his inkwell around, then splashes it on his face. Of course, Jenny gives the expositional, It's the Invisible Man! He's here! And begins screaming and leaps up on the table. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Griffin starts throwing things again and runs everyone out, but strangles Bird, taunting him about the hoax the whole time. He then takes the stool and hits him in the face with it. 
Ow. Yeah. On the drive back, he claims to Kemp that he had to kill a stupid little policeman, smashed his head in, too. But it looks like he probably just broke his nose to me. Yeah. Uh, but either way, you know, they couldn't probably be too violent, even pre-code. So, But apparently he did smash his head in. That's how he killed him. We then get one of those great montages of the town in alarm as radio broadcasts warn of the Invisible Man on the loose and now wanted for murder. People lock doors, men grab their guns, and I bet a torch or two was lit as well. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's a universal movie, so. Hide your women and children! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cranley was going to report Griffin missing when a newsboy alerts the town to the latest edition detailing the Invisible Man's murder of the inspector. He turns around. Now, you pointed out the newspaper is out with this headline, mm-hmm. but in the next scene, we see Bird's body removed. So... That's fast news, man. I know. And I mean, think about it. At the time, you know, the printing presses, it took forever to set the type and everything else. And yeah. I mean, well, either that or that body was laying in for a while. Yeah. 24-hour news cycle. What can you say? Not even 24. No, exactly. Back at Kemp's house, Griffin is eating and gives Kemp a rundown of the do's and don'ts of invisibility. He has to wait an hour before going out naked after meals. And let the food digest where you could see it floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has to be careful of rain, fog, and soot, which can give him away. Kemp will have to keep his feet clean and even his fingernails. What, yeah. what a diva. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he actually tells Kemp good night, which I think is interesting. I mean, you've basically, you know, you know, you've made this guy an accomplice to your murderous activities, but you're, you know, and you're threatened to kill him if he doesn't play along, but you tell him good night. So good night, I, sleep tight. Yeah, good night, John boy. At this point, I think he has deluded himself enough to think Kemp would go along with this. Right. So, uh, we then get the most difficult special effect Fulton pulled off when Griffin takes his bandages off while looking in the mirror. It involved filming him from the front and the back against the black velvet in separate shots and compositing it with several layers of background, the room behind him, the reflected room in the mirror, etc. And again, it looks great. Yes. Yeah. Back at the Lion's Head Inn, and the chief of detectives has now taken charge of the case. He's played by Dudley Diggs, primarily known as a very successful Broadway actor and director. He appeared in the 1931 version of the Maltese Falcon before the more famous Humphrey Bogart version. Uh, Jenny is seen in the background, but Wales spares us any more screaming. Thank goodness. I think we're done with Jenny at this point. So, Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Back at Kemp's house with Griffin in bed, he phones Cranley and tells him about Griffin Cranley initially tells him just to keep him there until morning, but Flora overhears and works on her father to go to him now. Cranley also tells him that they are the only ones who know that Griffin is the invisible man and not to call the police. Now, I know that it doesn't work out when Cranley, when Kemp does call the police, but I don't really think this is good advice. Do you? No. Yeah. I mean, here, keep a murderer in your, you know, in your house. Go ahead, you know. Exactly. And let's cover up for him. I mean, mm-hmm. no matter what, you know, he's killed a man at this point. So, yeah. We know he's killed at least one person, you know, let alone. Yeah. We see a few folks coming up with the ideas for the police to use so they can get the advertised reward. Uh, one of them uh, that calls in is uh, an uncredited actor, and that is horror icon John Carradine, who will show up in Wales, Bride of Frankenstein, and of course play Dracula for Universal in House of Frankenstein. Sorry, in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, he'll play a mad scientist in one of the sequels to this film, The Invisible Man's Revenge. Kemp calls the police anyway. He speaks to Inspector Lane, who we'll see throughout the rest of the film. He's played by D- Donald Stewart, best known for the silent version of Bo Jest. But he also appeared in Universal's Tower of London with Karloff, Basil Rathbone, and Vincent Price. 
Lane says he'll send some police over, and he sends a ton of police over. Uh huh. Yes. Kemp is waiting at the window when Griffin finds him in his locked study. He asks him why he was down there, and Kemp says he was frightened. Wouldn't you be frightened if I was invisible? And Griffin slyly tells him he shouldn't be frightened. We're friends. We're some partners. I think Griffin is catching on that Kemp really can't be trusted, though, don't you? Oh, yeah. They see Cranley and Flora pull up, and Griffin thinks they, that he actually called the cops, which, of course, he did. But Kemp points out who they are, and Griffin seems to be shocked that he hadn't even thought of Flora for some time. Mm-hmm. How could I forget? I guess Kemp was right about the relationship. Uh-huh. She's secondary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or third dairy. Yeah, yeah, third dairy. When they are alone, Flora asks why Griffin did it, and he says it was for her, so he could be known as a great scientist and be wealthy and worthy of her. So, yeah, blame it on her, dude. Uh-huh. He starts out speaking very softly and tenderly towards her, but then when he begins talking about his work, he raises his voice, begins to gesture grandly, and tells her how... He'll sell his secrets to the highest bidder in the nation with this power can sweep the world with invisible armies. Uh, you know, he's very, you know, very. that's another, you know, famous scene where he's, you know, got, he's standing there in front of that window and, you know, uh-huh. gesturing wildly and everything, yeah. Historians believe some of these notions of militant applications for invisibility are more influenced by a more contemporary book about an invisible madman, The Murder Invisible by Philip Wiley. Universal had bought the rights to that film as well, and at one point, they were basically going to adapt it and use the title of Wells' book and his name to promote it. Mm. Incidentally, Wiley also penned the novel Gladiator, which influenced the creation of Superman. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Flora begs him to let her father help him, but Griffin compares his brain to that of a maggot. She tells him about the effects of monocane, but he's not hearing it. He's too busy monologuing. But he's really great at it, mm-hmm. of course. Oh, come and stay with us. Let's fight this thing out together. Power, I said. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. Power to make multitudes run squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Even the moon's frightened of me, frightened to death. The whole world's frightened to death. Gloria Stewart has said she didn't really like working with Reigns because he would forget she was in the scene with him and he'd try to dominate the screen. Sounds like the relationship as portrayed in the film. Yeah, it does. Yeah. In his defense, this was only his second film and his first lead role. She also doesn't have a very strong character here. No. Uh, Flora's reactions to this fascinating development are very subdued. I'm not sure if that's her acting, the writing, or Whale's direction. But I don't really think it's Whale because he often had women being hysterical like Elizabeth in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's just Gloria Stewart's take or what the way the script was written. But she doesn't... She seems to take this all pretty well considering... Or maybe she thought since, you know, he was chewing the scenery so good, she'd be like, okay, dude, have it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. His monologue is interrupted by policemen surrounding the place. They link arms around the perimeter, which is actually pretty smart. Oh, it is. Yeah, I think that... I like that the police aren't stupid and are taking this seriously yes. in this film. Kip opens the window and Griffin escapes, but he vows to murder him by 10 o'clock the following night. And his follow-through rate is really good, Kemp, so you better split. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, yeah. He makes his way out to the police and has some fun with them. And like we said, he grabs one by the legs and swings him around, pulling his pants off. And uh, again, that kind of points to maybe him having some kind of super strength of some kind. We then get the memorable comedy scene with a large woman screaming as she runs toward the camera. Behind her is Griffin 
invisible except for the policeman's pants he's wearing, singing, Here we go, gathering nuts in May. And I love the whoops he does at the end. I know, it's kick, hilarious. Kicks his heels up. Yeah. Yeah. You can't kind of help but like this guy, even though he's like killing people. And you know, again, you yeah. can see where Mark Hamill's the Joker gets a lot from this particular take. I can see that. Yeah. The influence of it. Definitely. The next day, the chief of police, played by Holmes Herbert, who has also appeared in the Frederick March version of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde two years earlier, has some questions for Cranley, Flora, and Kemp. Cranley tries to protect Griffin's identity, but Kemp blurts out that Griffin is the Invisible Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. screw that. He's hysterical about Griffin returning to murder him. Which, I wonder, he's not hysterical. He's like genuinely frightened. It's yeah. not being hysterical. That's true. It's being genuinely, holy crap, this dude's coming to kill me. Well, that's true, that's true. Uh, we then get the biggest murder spree in Universal Monster history. Griffin kills two of the search party participants on camera by choking them and pushing them off a cliff. And then he pulls his most notorious act. He sneaks into a train station, knocks out the attendant, and switches the tracks, causing a passenger train to derail off the side of a trestle. The chief of detectives later says he killed 20 searchers and 100 on the train. Add in Inspector Bird and the upcoming murder of Kemp, and you have a body count of 122. Spoiler. Yeah, sorry. I bet even Jason and Michael Myers can't claim that across the whole series. <laughs> The train scene looks great, too, using miniatures. Fulton found if you sped up the miniature, then slowed the film, it added the proper weight to it to make it look real. It was so good, Universal later reused it in a Sherlock Holmes film. He also robs a bank and then dumps the drawer in the street. And I love how he sings Pop Goes the Weasel as the people scramble for free cash. He then shouts, money, 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 money. Yeah. <laughs> Repeatedly over and over again. Like Jack Nicholson in Batman. Yeah, exactly. You know? Money, 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 who do you trust? Yeah, yeah you know? <laughs> exactly. A lot of Joker in this Invisible Man. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't even care about the dough. It's about the anarchy. He's like the Joker in the Dark Knight. And I just made that. <laughs> I know, without even reading that note. Yeah. Some people just want to watch the world, world burn. burn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a brief scene with an actually distraught Flora as her father tries to comfort her. She's left looking at Griffin's photo, but we don't see it. I know. Here was a chance to get Claude Rain's face on the camera for just a few seconds, seconds. more. Yeah. And they don't show it. It's always from behind the, the frame. The, yeah. From the shot. It's shot from behind the frame is. So back at Kemp's house, the chief of detectives is laying out his plan. But first he has his men go across the room with a net and make sure they don't have an unwanted visitor. Again, that's smart. Smart. It is. Yeah. I like that. So the plan is the police will surround Kemp and walk him down to the station. The cops are armed with, with spray paint guns, and they put a layer of loose earth around the surrounding wall. Kemp was meant to stay at the station, but he chooses to flee. So they Dummy. disguise him as a cop and drive him back home where he gets in his car. The only problem is Griffin was wise to their plan, followed Kemp into the station, onto the policeman's car, and then into Kemp's car, mm -hmm. riding on the runner boards and things. They also spray a poor cat who dared knock off some dirt off the wall. I know. <laughs> and back then, they probably actually sprayed, sprayed the, cat. the cat. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, yeah, the Humane Society wasn't around, uh, or ASPCA wasn't well, around. Well, if we'd watched this movie with Danny, Danny would have walked out. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Kip is driving along the countryside, hears the bells for 10 o'clock, and boasts that he managed to escape. Then he hears Griffin's voice. Kim tries to act like he didn't betray him and is still up for the partner job. Sorry, that offer has been rescinded. And I'm just like, okay, what's the big deal? This is a, a murderer, 
And just because he's like, oh, it's 1001, I guess you're safe now. You think, no, yeah. just, yeah. you know, yeah. dude, he's going to come get you. I was going to kill you, Kemp, but the expiration date is, you know, yeah, come yeah. to pass. <laughs> uh, he pulls Kemp out by his scarf, choking him, and ties his hands and feet. He puts him back in the car and drives it for a bit. He then stops on an incline and describes in detail what's about to happen. He pulls the handbrake, gives the car a push, and Kemp's car goes careening off the road over a cliff and crashes on the rocks below, exploding. Actually a little bit more spectacularly than even Griffin described Yeah. It. So, yeah. Uh, the miniature car crash was also reused by Universal in other films, and it really looks great. Griffin hides in a barn and falls asleep in the straw. And I've worked in hay before. Wouldn't that be extremely itch- itchy if you were naked? I know. I would think. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I mean, it just eats your arms up. And oh, just yeah. Leaves you with just like, oh, it's bad. An old farmer notices breathing and movement in the hay. Somehow he doesn't wake Griffin up despite poking him with his cane. I know. <laughs> it's like He's deep asleep. He is. He's knocked out. So, uh, The police are already happy to see a nice snowfall to make their jobs easier. Then the farmer comes in telling him he has the invisible man in his barn. And I thought it was odd a lot of the cops rode out to the farm on bikes in the snow. Snow, yeah. yeah. And they look like they're not like dirt bike tires you oh, have no. nowadays. Uh-huh. Like thin, no-tread tires. They tell the old man he'll receive a 1,000 pounds for this. They'll have to build him a new barn because they set it on fire to smoke him out. I mean... <laughs> I hope they cover the barn and, and give him the, yeah, the reward. The reward, yeah. The hay moves about as the smoke enters the barn, which is a nice effect. You can just kind of like he's throwing it off of himself. Yeah. I don't even know how they did that. I don't know if they had some kind of blower that like pointed directly at it, like, I know, a, like but a leaf how, blower yeah. or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they. I guess they had leaf blowers back then. So. I don't know. Even more impressive is the appearing footprints in the snow when he leaves the burning barn. They achieve this by pulling out pre-cut footprints in a board with a layer of snow beneath. But did you catch the mistake? No. His feet look like he's got on shoes. They're pointed. Oh. His footprints are pointed like he's got on shoes. Oh. They're not. There's no toes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. A, that's a big goof. Boo-boo, yeah. Yeah, it is a big goof because he's naked. Yeah. The chief of detectives just fires toward the footprints, and we see an impression of a large mass hit the snow. No blood, because that would be invisible, too. Because it's his body. Yeah. yeah. But I really, that, that, when he falls into snow and that just... Makes like it's not quite like a snow angel, but it's like the impact of his body hitting, yeah. hitting into the snow is really nicely done. Later at a hospital, a doctor tells everyone he won't last long. But how do they know the bullet punctured both lungs? They say it did, but how do they know? Right. I guess you could see the bullet floating in air, maybe. Uh, I guess you would, wouldn't you? Well, you know, because when he's when you put food in, he says you can see it. Yeah, so there's like there's like a bullet like floating around in yeah. just in air, like as they lift him and stuff. Griffin asks for Flora, and of course she eventually arrives. He tells her he tried to come back, and then begins to fade as his body begins to reappear. We get a really well done lapse dissolve of a skull appearing, then some skin. And finally, the face of Claude Rains on screen for about 20 seconds yeah. as Griffin dies. Roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you think of this one? You'd seen it before, right? No, I'd actually never seen The Invisible Man all the way through. How? I, I just hadn't. I mean, and this was the first time. I mean, I'd seen like little bits and pieces, you, sure. know, you know. Sure, But not all the way through. I'd never seen it before. Oh, I see. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, no. wow. I thought you, see, I don't, I try not to, we try not to watch movies you haven't seen before because of, 
Dr. Fibes. So, but, you know, I mean, the Universal you're going to be probably oh, yeah. in good hands yeah. with. But, yeah, but I, I had no idea. I thought for sure all the years that I've watched it and when me and Andrew were watching the Universal movies a lot and then Sven Gulli shows it quite yeah. a bit. That but, no, I'm not actually sat and... Well, what did know, you think of it? Oh, I liked it. It was really good. And, I mean, like you said, you can see where Mark Hamill... Had, you know, drew that, drew that in, and you can, see, you know, was, I really enjoyed it. So, as so. of the James Whale films of, you know, Franken's, I don't, I don't think you've, have you ever seen the Old Dark House? No. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. We should watch that one year. But, um, of, you know, I know obviously you've seen Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. Mm. Uh, where do you think that the Invisible Man kind of fits in for you there? Oh, I mean, I think they're all, you know, of those first ones, they all go. They're of a equal caliber. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, it's odd for me because despite really liking Claude Rains and like everything, being fond of the book, I never think of the Invisible Man as being a favorite Universal monster, you know, as far as a character. Uh, you know, I like him way better than some of the lower tier characters. And I have some action figures, as we said, and I have a t-shirt, and I like the iconography of him, but he's somewhere after the creature and the mummy and way below Wolfman, Frankenstein, and Dracula for me. But watching this for House of Frankenstein, I now can appreciate that this is one of the best of the whole Universal Mm -hmm. Monster franchise. I mean, it's so well done on every level. Wells' direction, Fulton's effects, and most importantly, Claude Rains' performance. Sure, there are a few detractors. Uno O'Connor should have given Gloria Stewart an energy transfusion, and it would have done both of them some good. Right. (laughs) Actually. Bring one of them up, bring one of them down. Exactly. But that was just part and parcel of women's portrayal on screen at the time. They were either very subdued or just a raving lunatic like Uno O'Connor was. Other than that, the film holds up very, very well. It's smart. It's sly. It has a wicked sense of humor, which is Mm -hmm. all James Whale. It, It runs at a great clip. And it has almost no fat on it. Uh, it's a perfect little movie, really. Yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing it again. The film was a huge hit and got Universal back in the black after some financial difficulties, which is a common story with the monster films, which is odd considering how the studio often treats them. Although I am happy to say that finally they're going to have a freaking Universal Monster Land at this epic universe that they're opening down in Florida. Yes, in it, 2025. And I cannot wait to go. It sounds like it's going to be so awesome. And I just and they took down my beloved Universal Monster Cafe, but I forgive them because they're giving it a whole land. So I know, I know. <laughs> so I can't wait to go. Uh, the Invisible Man spawned a slew of sequels, although it took several years to get them started. The Invisible Man Returns, 1940, with Vincent Price and his first true horror film role. The Invisible Woman, 1941, Invisible Agent, 1942, Invisible Commando, no, that wasn't a real one. The Invisible Man's Revenge, 1944, a cameo appearance with the voice of Vincent Price in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, 1948, and finally he gets his due with Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man in 1951, which is probably the second best Abbott and Costello monster movie. So just a curiosity, in The Invisible Man Returns, it's a different person that becomes invisible. Yeah, it is. Uh, I just didn't know if there was some, you know... I need to go back and rewatch that one, but it's I believe that Vincent Price gets the formula from Jack Griffin's brother. Okay. And he goes invisible to try to clear his name of murder or something Mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we should do that one, because one, it's... Invisible Man and two, it's Vincent Price. And we haven't done enough Vincent Price no, on here. No. I know, but after Dr. Fives, I'm going to... Yeah. Well... <laughs> Just not Dr. Fives. Mm-hmm. But you like The Haunted Palace. But we need, yes. to, we need to do some more of the Poe films and things like that. But yeah. We'll take a quick promo break, then head to the comic crypt. But we're not pulling out a comic this time. 
Come back for more. Night has fallen, and the time has come to experience Terror at Collinwood, a podcast dedicated to the iconic gothic television series Dark Shadows. Terror at Collinwood explores the hidden secrets within the sinister walls of the Collins estate. Hosted by two-time Rondo Award-winning television horror hostess Penny Dreadful, the podcast features interviews and in-depth discussions with fans and creators as they examine the cursed characters and supernatural storylines of that creepy classic, Dark Shadows. Beware the night and the restless dead who wail on Widow's Hill, and prepare yourself for Terror at Collinwood, a Dark Shadows podcast. Available at terroratcollinwood.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Seance, The I Ching, or wherever you get your scary podcasts. Hey, Sean. Did you know that Batman Family Reunion is expanding? Oh my god, what? Our episodes are not going to be three hours long? No, no, no. Now that we have moved into Detective Comics, we are going to see stories starring other members of the, let's say, extended Batman family, like the human target. He's a detective. The demon. He's been in Batman Family before. Elongated man. He's a detective. Red Tornado. He's been in Batman Family before. Black Lightning. Ooh, he's cool. And the Atom. He's small. (laughs) I'm excited by the upcoming artists. Not only are we still going to see my favorite, Michael Glorious Golden, but we will see art by Don Newton, Dick Giordano, Irv Novick, Jose Delvo, Johnny Craig, and even Steve Ditko and Dan Spiegel. Awesome, but we won't forget the original stars. We'll see Robin return to the big top and Babs discover a family secret. Man Bat teams up with Jason Bard, Batman teams up with Batgirl, and we will finally get an all-new Alfred story. We will see villains like Maxi Zeus, the Riddler, the Crime Doctor, and the Truckers. But Paul, you know people say that the best part about the reunion is getting to interact with our Bat cousins. I personally think it's all of the food, but I understand their point of view. We are continuing our guest list, including some repeat visits, but also some new Bat relatives. We love that our show has become a real family reunion, and we can't wait for you to hear what we have planned. That's the Batman Family Reunion on all of your podcast apps, only on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Priceless jewels are disappearing from Gotham without a trace. Even I, Batman, will have to use every detective skill I know to track this elusive new criminal genius. It's a brand new magical mystery adventure. You won't believe your eyes. You've got to be here for this incredible all-new episode of Batman, the animated series, tomorrow afternoon on Fox. Okay, let's head down to the comic crypt and fire up the Blu-ray player. that over there behind the shelves. Solomon Grundy on Visible, you know see me. Whoa, Grundy, put some pants on. Oh, good grief, I need bleach for my eyes. Don't say bleach, everything is white. Grundy, why are you naked? Ghostman say Grundy can be invisible if he takes off clothes. You undead moron. That only works if you are a ghost or an invisible man or something. Grundy confused. You shouldn't see Grundy. Well, we do see and we'll never unsee you. Please go put some clothes on. Fine. Rundy can't have no fun around here. Super goat man, tell me how I'm going to get there. Hey, at least he kept his boots on, I guess. <sighs> okay, after all that, we're back. And although we're in the comic crypt, we're going to be discussing something in the wheelhouse of our JLU cast series 
an episode from the DCAU, this time going back to the roots of the DCAU in Batman the Animated Series. The episode is See No Evil and originally aired February 4th, 1993. It's episode 56. Oh, 93 and 33. Oh, nice. 60 years, yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Very nice, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Martin Pascoe, directed by Dan Ribba, who of course directs half of our JLU episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, with music by Shirley Walker. In the cast, we had, of course, Kevin Conroy as Batman and Bruce Wayne, Dick Erdman as Elliot, Danny Goldman as Sam Goodell, Michael Gross as Lloyd Ventress, Ken Howard as Hartness, Elizabeth Moss as Kimmy, Chuck Olson as Security Guard, Brock Peters as Lucius Fox, and Gene Smart as Helen. In her suburban home, young Kimmy Ventress is visited by her invisible friend Mojo, who enters through her window and brings her a gold heart necklace. Mojo promises he'll bring the pearl necklace she really wanted next time. Kimmy tells Mojo he may not be able to find her, since her mother tells her they are moving. Mojo seems upset and leaves. Later, at the Gotham Convention Center, a man enters the showroom of the Jewelers Convention carrying a briefcase. Inside is a plastic suit which covers him from head to toe. Activating a dial on his watch, the suit glows and the man and his suitcase become invisible. He then proceeds to rob the dealers and patrons of the convention. Bruce Wayne is in attendance buying a watch. He changes to Batman and pursues his invisible prey. Despite covering them with first smoke, then paint, the transparent terror burns off of the paint and makes his escape. Back in his apartment, the men reveals his identity as Lloyd Ventress, Kimmy's father, determined to be with her no matter what the mother thinks. Ventress follows his ex-wife Helen as she drops Kimmy off at school and onto the local grocery where she works. He greets her, but she is none too happy to see him, citing the restraining order she has against him. Ventress tries to convince her he has changed, but she refuses to believe it. She denies his request to see Kimmy and warns him to stay away from her, telling him she just wishes he'd disappear. Ventress is happy to oblige. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne visits Wayne Tech, based on a faint memory of an invisibility project the company was once involved in. His staff tell him that the inventor developing it, Karos, had pulled out of a possible deal and later passed away. They point him toward the assistant on the project, Sam Goodell. Batman visits Goodell and after an initial misunderstanding learns that Goodell was prepping the experimental plastic for disposal since the light bending material turns poison and toxic when the necessary light is applied to turn it invisible. Batman learns that another assistant on the project was an ex-con named Lloyd Ventress. Batman tracks down Ventress' ex-wife Helen to her home and warns her about the effects of the plastic. Helen then realizes that Kimmy's friend Mojo was not a figment of her imagination. She races into the house, but Kimmy is gone. At a nearby drive-in, Mojo tries to persuade Kimmy to get into his car, but she's hesitant. When he unmasks, she's shocked to learn that he's a man and even more upset when he tells her that he is her father. Helen had warned Kimmy about her father, so she runs, as Batman swings in to get a solid kick in on his opponent. Kimmy runs to her mother's arms while Batman attempts to fire a tranquilizer at Ventress. He leaps into his car, and having equipped it with plastic and tech, turns it invisible. Batman grabs onto the top, seemingly flying through downtown Gotham. Ventress takes the car onto a train trestle, another train trestle, and he and Batman both manage to leap off just in time landing on a nearby rooftop. Batman is taken by surprise by his unseen foe, who pummels him. Batman launches a series of throwing stars at the water tower above them, and when the water begins to rain down, Ventress is visible. Batman makes short work of the no longer invisible man. Later, Kimmy talks to a friend out her window and tells him 
She and her mother are moving away where her father can never find her. Helen asks who she's talking to, and she tells her it was Batman. Helen incredulously believes her, but outside, Batman leaps from the roof into the night. Uh, so this episode is written by Martin Pascoe, longtime comic writer and story editor on this series, Batman Animated Series. For comics, he had long runs writing Superman, Wonder Woman, Swamp Thing, The Blackhawks, and just about every DC feature you can think of. He wrote several issues of the Joker solo series in the 70s as well. On TV, he wrote for both live-action and animated series, such as Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Thundar the Barbarian, Black Star, G.I. Joe, Fantasy Island, Max Hedrum, the animated Incredible Hulk from the 80s, and the list goes on and on. He also served as story editor on the 80s Twilight Zone, Mr. T, My Little Pony, Simon and Simon, and Roseanne. So he was on My Little Pony and Roseanne. That's a weird yeah, combo. Yeah. He was also a contributing writer to Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2020. Uh, this episode has a creepy feeling to it, and it starts with Eric Radomski's wonderful title card. The title is uh, in see-through letters with a white outline, and there's an open window with some ghostly, tattered blinds blowing and a light shining on an abandoned teddy bear in the floor. It screams invisible man and child abduction yes. both. Yes. It's very chilling, yeah. Uh, having this set in an older suburb of Gotham makes it seem isolated and somehow more dangerous, too. It's got mm -hmm. that John Carpenter's Halloween kind of feel to it. Yes. You know? uh, did you notice the marquee at the drive-in, which we'll revisit later, you see a title with some letters missing, but if you squint, you can see before it closed, they were playing The Invisible Man. Really? Yes. I didn't notice that. Yes. Okay, that's a cool catch. Yeah, yeah. We meet Kimmy, voiced by a very young Elizabeth Moss, famous now for Mad Men, The Handmaid's Tale, and the recent remake of The Invisible Man. And she had to be feeling deja vu. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've done this before. You know, so. It's all good. Yeah. I got this. <laughs> Kimmy's imaginary friend, who we'll later learn is her estranged father, is voiced by one of TV's greatest dads, definitely playing against type. Yes, Michael Gross, the laid-back former hippie dad of Family Ties, is playing our creepy villain here. Of course, he played a bit of a gritty character in the Tremor series, but he's still a good guy there, even if he's a bit of a nut. Yeah, he's, he's a fruit bar. Yeah, he's a fruit bar, but he helps save the day, so, you know, he's all right. And he ends up being the hero of those later ones, which I've never watched, so, yeah. you know. When they lost Kevin Bacon, I'm like, ah, no, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> and Kevin Bacon played Hollow Man. Da, 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 <laughs> which is uh, basically another remake of The Invisible Man. Man, yeah. Yeah, wow. Mm. <laughs> of course, it's Kevin Bacon. Like, we're surprised about this connection to Kevin Bacon. You know, six degrees. Six yeah, degrees no. of Kevin Bacon. It's much easier to pull off an Invisible Man in animation, which Bruce Timm, of course, admitted. All the floating toys, opening windows, etc. would have been difficult for John P. Fulton to pull off, but if you can draw it, you can make it look real in animation. Here's the thing. John P. Fulton could have done it. He I could, mean, I after what he did in 1933, <laughs> he could have. 60 years later, not a problem. Mm. That is so cool that that's 60 years in between the two. And I should mention... And it's 30 years from 1993, so we've got, you know, that we're recording this. Yeah, that's true. John P. Fulton, I shouldn't have mentioned, he was nominated for Academy Awards for um, the Invisible Man later movies. He never got any, but he did get one uh, for the Ten Commandments. He's the guy that made Moses Parther of C. Oh, okay, C. okay. Yeah, so... Big dude in special effects. Yeah. Uh, so how long has Mojo been visiting Kimmy? At least for a while, because 
you know, he mentions the fact that I promised you I'd bring you a right. pearl necklace. So how creepy is that? I know. You know, it's been at least three or four times anyway. And it, her mother's know. aware of who Mojo is. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, Ventress sounds genuinely caring for Kimmy in these opening scenes. So do you think he's sincere or it's just an obsession with having something he's being denied or is it a bit of both? Both. Yeah, I kind of thought so too. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, I don't think he's going to harm her like intentionally or do anything untowards with her, but... At the same time, he's a dangerous person that does yes. not need to be in he's charge. He's unhinged of a, now. Yeah, he doesn't need to be in charge of a child. Yeah, uh, Helen walks in right after Kimmy tells her uh, father that they are moving. So, like we said, she knows about Mojo and thinks he's a harmless imaginary friend. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed him. Yeah. So, <laughs> Helen is voiced by Gene Smart, then best known for the long-running series Designing Women, but now for a variety of series like Fargo, Mayor of Easttown. Big Mouth and Hacks. She also appeared in comic adaptations like Legion in the TV series Watchmen. She's had a, quite a career resurgence yes. in the last several years. And I always liked her. So, Well, and I truly respect her. She actually has type 1. Does she really? Yep. I didn't know that. She's one of the people that she has type 1 and, you know. Advocates so. for it? Yep. She's oh, an advocate. Cool. Our, our daughter Danny has type 1 in case he didn't know that. So, type 1 diabetes. So yeah. that's why Cindy's saying that. I knew about the Jonas brother, this yeah, guy, yeah. but I didn't know about her and yeah. some other people. But oh, that's cool. I she was that. actually one of the first big celebrity names that came out. Oh, okay. So. Cool. Uh, Kimmy says, He was really here, mommy. And she responds, I know, honey, I know. And we'll get a repeat of that at the end. So uh, the scenes of Invisible Mojo walking down the street with all the leaves and trash blowing are even. Eerie. When he kicks the can. Yeah, yeah. he kicks the can because he's mad. Yeah, yeah. We then cut the next day to the jeweler's convention, and we see Lloyd Ventress for the first time. He has spots on his face, but I can never decide if those are supposed to be acne scars or freckles. I took it to be, you know, that maybe the plastic was affecting him. Hmm. I mean, because it was such a weird effect. Maybe. Because I thought, well, maybe that's affecting him. Because, I mean, but his wife, his ex-wife or wife... Because Batman later refers to her as... His wife. Yeah, so I'm wondering if they're going through... Yeah. Well, usually you can't do... I don't think you can do a divorce while they're incarcerated. You have to go through a lot of extra steps. Mm. I don't know. It'd be easier. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's just interesting. He's... He kind of... His design reminds me a little bit of the Harvey Dent look. Mm. Just a little bit. I don't know. It's just where it's such an odd facial texture. Yeah. It just made me think that there might be something to that. Yeah, I just kind of thought maybe there were pop marks. Mm. Well, also color. true. Also but true. He, his his eyes are really weird. They're like a reddish brown. Uh-huh. It's really kind of creepy looking, yeah. Ventress goes into the restroom of the convention with his briefcase and the security guard must really have to go. Hello. He loudly asks, hey, who locked the bathroom? But we do see two urinals in there. So yeah, you shouldn't have locked it. It's not a private bathroom. Yeah. That's a no-no. You yeah, don't there's do at least two urinals and probably a stall. So, yeah. you know. You're... Yeah, yeah you, that's more than one person in that bathroom. Yeah. So you shouldn't lock it. Yeah. But Ventress is putting on his invisible suit in there. Apparently, the briefcase is also covered in the mm-hmm. plastic as it disappeared once he touches it and charges it with the electric apparatus on his wrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Bruce was in the market for a new Rolex, uh, but Ventress takes it and drawers of other bits of expensive jewelry... But why do the items disappear in the briefcase? That's not how invisibility works in the film we just covered. But it's entirely enclosed. So, But this is the part 
where I'm like, Ventress is so stupid. Because if you really had this, why make a big production of it? Why not? I mean, they've got it all laying out on the table. Just take this stuff that's on the corners and make your way through. quietly through and not touch anybody. I mean, yeah. to me, I mean, that's just, you know, not smart thieving. Not, uh, he's not He's not as smart as, the, of course, the Invisible Man does it on purpose, purpose to create but chaos. I, but when he doesn't want to, he's sly about That's it. what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. not smart. I mean, if no. I didn't want to get caught... I wouldn't draw attention to it. Yeah. I think I say things that make people think I would be a good criminal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't intentionally do that. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to comment for fear of oh, getting you know incriminating myself. Bruce runs ah! off to change. <laughs> Let alone incriminating me. That's yeah. nice. Bruce runs off to change. Everyone's panicking, but the security guard is still worried about peeing himself. I know. He's like, oh, he's biting his lip. Oh my. Yeah. I think he probably doesn't have to worry about it after Batman unknowingly flattens him with the door on the way out. <laughs> Clean up in aisle seven, you yeah, know? With a mop. Yeah. The other security guard says, hey, my piece, it's been stolen. They probably couldn't say gun right yeah. there. I, but it does make, a piece makes him sound like he's a criminal uh-huh. to me more than a security guard, you know. But anyway. Batman chases the invisible thief through the opening doors that I can't decide if it's an alleyway or it's like, it's it's a new part that they're work. It's a part where they're it's under construction, but it's so narrow. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's what, and, he, and he it, says it has high ceilings later. Oh yeah, true. So maybe it's just it looks like a cityscape in the background. Well, maybe it's just like an interior hallway. Yeah, you and know? it's paint the cityscapes painted on the wall. Yeah, but they shouldn't have done that because it's confusing. Yes, it's it's confusing. But he he chases him out there, and yeah. In a bit James Well would no doubt approve of, Batman says, Who are you? I know you're in here. And there's a construction worker just sitting down enjoying his lunch. And he just glances back and forth as if to say, Who in the hell are you talking to, you nut? You know? Just oh, like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Ventress throws a pointed spade at Batman, which surprises me because that's something a kid could find around the house and throw at another kid. Uh-huh. So Fox BSP is falling down on the job right Yeah, because that's something that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think about making sure a kid didn't have access to. Right. Batman throws one of his smoke bombs and briefly sees Ventress, and then he throws a bucket of paint at him. Well, and I like how he throws the bucket of paint. He doesn't try and throw it just in one thing. He sweeps it. Sweeps it, which is smart. Yeah, well, he is Batman. I know, but I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, I know. you know. yeah. It sticks to Ventress, but he adjusts the dial and it evaporates off. How hot is exactly. that Exactly. And, you know, how... How's that not frying him? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, that makes me think of how hot, like, a lamination machine can be. Mm-hmm. Those things will burn you if I, you're not careful. Trust me, I know. I work at a school. I know. Well, I've, I've, I'm a graphic designer. I have to laminate stuff occasionally for I, people. I don't know how many times when I first started that I'd singe my fingertips, you know, feeding yeah, things in there. I know. Batman leaps but lands in wet concrete. Ventress takes advantage of this and the high ceilings to disorient him and knocks him around, giving him time to run off. He even quips, See you around, Batman. Too bad you can't say the same. And that's pretty bold for a two-bit punk with a gimmick. Mm-hmm. But we follow Ventress back to his apartment and we see Kimmy's picture on his table, just like Kemp had, you know, floors. Uh, he has a very creepy monologue about being her dear old dad and how Helen is moving to keep her away from him, which is probably right. And his red-brown eyes are very odd and unsettling, as we said. So, uh, Bruce Tim has said he finds the original animated series episode pacing kind of slow for him to watch now. 
But I think we lost a lot of mood and atmosphere for the whiz-bang elements of Justice League and JLU. I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're just different. Yeah. I mean, this is just more of a... It's more textural. You know, you, there's mm -hmm. more... They take the time to set up mood and, and atmosphere where they don't so much on JLU. It's more about, you know, action and the amount of characters you can get in, which is why we love it. But, yeah, I think there is something to be that, it, that was lost. Uh, of course, another star of this show is Shirley Walker's wonderful score. Of course, she scored the majority of the series with the uh, dynamic partners team that now do, that, well, that did JLU that we were covering now. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of her apprentices, basically, on that, on animated series. and uh, But it's wonderful. When we follow Kimmy and Helen to school, it's an upbeat, very childlike theme. When it switches to a somber, foreboding sound, we see Ventress is watching them. And then we get back to that eerie mojo music of twinkling piano keys. Which, again, reminds me a bit of the Two-Face theme, but done on piano instead of the woodwinds like that one is. Mm -hmm. Which, the Two-Face theme is really creepy. So, think about this. Ventress is waiting at Kimmy's school, which is, of course, disturbing. Mm -hmm. Then he follows Helen to work and waits for her lunch break. And he's just waiting at the doors. Yeah. So, he was hanging around outside. At for least for three, four hours. Three or four hours to confront her. Mm-hmm. That's creepy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a real-world, stalky, creepy aspect to this episode, obviously. He greets her with, hey, babe, long time. The no C is not said but implied. Now, here's where I have a problem. Okay. If I was at my workplace and somebody that I, you know... Had a restraining order against. Had a restraining order against and was afraid of, I would not walk away from where people knew who I was probably knew what my situation was, would accept my word that said, hey, that my ex-husband is following me, call the police, they would accept without question. No, she walks down the street to the cafeteria. Yeah. I'm like, that's not smart. No, it's not She should have turned around and went back in. He's violating her. She should have turned around, walked in, and called the uh, his parole officer, the mm -hmm. cops, called the cops and said, he's violating the restraining order, yep. and he's obviously violating his parole. Because he mentioned that you heard about the parole. Yeah. yeah, she heard about it, but you're not allowed within 100 feet because he said the restraining order, you don't need that anymore. It made sense when I was a you know creep or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, dude, you're still a creep. You know, it's just... It, I mean, I'm sorry, but she walked away from the people who were her yeah. support system. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she goes to that local cafeteria, as you said, and he tries to pay for her lunch. Yeah. And she asked him how many all-night gas stations he had to knock over for that. So you kind of get the idea what kind of criminal ventress was. Mm -hmm. He was a low, low-level, just, you know, thief, and, you know, robbed liquor stores and gas stations and things. He's wearing a nice suit, probably bought with the, mm -hmm. the jewelry. Ill-gotten gains. Yeah. And he tells her he can give Kimmy anything she could ask for. She tells him she warned her about him. But apparently she didn't give her a picture of him because she doesn't recognize him later. Right. Uh, she tells him she just wishes he'd disappear. And, of course, he says, be careful what you wish for. And Gross really sells how slimy this guy is. Yes. Helen is so upset she leaves her untouched lunch. <laughs> yep. We cut to Wayne Tech and Bruce is following up on a memory of something that probably came across his desk. The kind of thing Bruce Wayne would have no interest in. But if it worked, I bet we would have had an invisible Batmobile. Uh-huh. <laughs> Does it come in black? You know, 
Uh, Brock Peters voiced Lucius Fox, speaking of which, on several episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and he does so here. He's best known for To Kill a Mockingbird, Soliet Green, and Star Trek's Four and Six, which he played Admiral Cartwright, who ended up being a traitor to the Federation. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of sad, but it was like, <gasps> Admiral Cartwright? You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. Uh, another Wayne employee, Hartness, is voiced by Ken Howard, best remembered as TV's The White Shadow and the film 1776 and Michael Clayton. It's amazing that Andrea Romano got some of these big-name character actors like this to come in and read just a few lines. Yeah. But that continued all the way up through JLU as evidenced by Robert Forster as a U.S. president, which we just covered. Again, Andrea Romano is the shiznit. Yes, she is. She is the secret sauce in the animated universe. Yeah. She is. We definitely wouldn't get the protracted sequence of Batman snooping, snooping about Goodell's lab later in JLU. I like the humanizing shot of Batman holding his flashlight in his mouth as he reads the file on the plastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little bit. Goodell hears him and pushes a bookcase on him. Yeah. Uh, Goodell is voiced by Danny Goldman, the voice of Brainy Smurf. That's where I wreck. I'm sorry. That's where I wreck. Thanks for hitting me in the chest. <laughs> but also the student who just won't let Frederick Frankenstein alone about his family history and young Frankenstein. That's him. Okay. Like, Didn't your grandfather blah 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 blah? Yeah, yeah. to say God. My grandfather's work was doo doo. I yeah. knew that the you know the student and Brainy Smurf were the same person, but it didn't. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. I didn't know that. You've told me that before. Oh, I must have forgotten it. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> I didn't know. Okay. That's him. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Yeah, I like how Goodell apologizes for pushing a bookcase over on an intruder since he's Batman. It's of course perfectly fine for him to break into someone's property and snoop around. Because he's Batman. Because he's Batman. Oh, it's okay. Well, if I knew you were Batman, I would have just let you break into my place and snoop around for no good reason. Yeah. You know. Uh, (laughs) There's a part of me that doesn't like the adventurous is an ex-con, and that means he's, of course, dirty and therefore our invisible man. Right. But I know the series would address an ex-con who does go straight in the new Batman Adventures old wounds. Yes. Which was a nice touch there. And Bat- and Bruce Wayne helped him out and got him a job, even after he roughed him up in front of his kids, which is one reason why Dick quit being Robin. Yeah. So, Helen's taking the garbage out, turns around, and there's Batman standing there. How weird would that be? Oh, right. I'm yeah. like, why? I'm yeah. <laughs> you could have recycled that, you know. Uh-oh. Oh, kind of like you do me when I forget to put yeah, things in there. Put the can... In the other, the round trash can, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> it could be worse. I could talk like Christian Bale, you know. Like, Where's your can? Where'd you put it? You put it in the wrong where trash receptacle. I say, of course, while they're talking, Mojo is giving Kimmy the pearl necklace she wanted. Pearl necklaces in Batman stories, never a good thing. No. What little girl wants jewelry like that, though? You? Every little girl wants a pearl necklace. It's a thing. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I was never a little girl, so I'm not. No. But, yeah. A pearl necklace is like... that's Like a boy wants dog tags, kind of, I guess. Well, I mean, a pearl necklace is elegant, and when you dress up, you're wearing Well, that's true. Little girls wear, like, little fake pearl necklaces. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it does, yeah. Kimmy puts the necklace on, and it immediately disappears in the long shot when Mojo is carrying her out, and it never reappears. I know. I was like, what? 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 Where'd it go? Did she put it in the jewelry box and I just didn't see? What yeah, happened? It's supposed to be still around her neck. I know, yeah. I know, but you know. I wonder, we'll wonder if she had to give it back at the end. I bet she did. Oh, yeah. Batman puts his hands on Helen's shoulders while explaining the dangers of the plastic. He's getting a bit too handsy there, Bruce. Well, she's pretty attractive. She is pretty attractive. Yeah, yeah. she is. 
But but you know, it's like you know, it's like it's not like she's like hysterical or something. It's like you've got to listen to me. You know, it's like she's he's like, and the plastic is toxic, and you know. But I like that Helen figures it out. Yeah, she's no dummy. Well, she kind of is because she would have called the cops, right? right well, although maybe if your creeper ex shows up, don't leave your kid even to take the trash out. You know, yeah. she, I mean, he wants to get at her. Don't leave her in the house but by herself. But the thing is, he, she left her in the house. Yeah. Versus being outside. I know, know, but still. I know, but I, you yeah. know. The scene where Helen finds Kimmy's room empty with the window open and the curtains blowing is real world chilling. And Gene Smart plays her anguish and despair really well. Batman picks up Kimmy's doll. Then we fade to black on a close-up of it. It's it's like innocence lost, mm-hmm. really. It's, it's really well done. Uh, Helen seems shocked that Batman's got a gun, but it's just a tranquilizer dart. But seeing Batman load any kind of gun is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, abandoned drive-ins are creepy. Yes. It's very creepy looking there. Kimmy is hesitant to get in the car. At first I thought it was all the stranger danger lessons she got, but it's mostly because she knows it'll look like the car's driving itself and they'll get into trouble. So I love kid logic. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Kimmy is surprised when he takes his mask off. She doesn't recognize him, but I guess she didn't think Mojo was a real man. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, well, I guess maybe he could be like Bing Bong and yeah, that's and what inside I was out. Too, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but she does say he's not supposed to. She does say he's not supposed to be with strangers. Did Kimmy kind of think all this was imaginary? You think just like the whole thing? I I don't know. I don't I don't yeah. think she thought it was imaginary, but I think. You know that brought her into reality, and she's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I'm not supposed to be around people I don't know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he tells her he's her dad, and she says he's a bad man. And mommy says that's why they locked him up. Ouch. Mm-hmm. So that's got to hurt for him. But he tells her she's coming with him. Whether Mama's not wrong. No, oh, yeah, she comes. She's coming with him whether she wants to or not. And Batman gets a great intro, standing on the drive-in screen. Not in this lifetime, pal. Yep. Of course, we get the Batman theme, and he swings right into Ventress's chest. So he's got he's got a head to aim at at the moment. Yeah. yeah. According to IMDb, so take this with a grain of salt. Kimmy was originally supposed to be in the car during the big chase, but broadcast standards balked at child endangerment. I can definitely see that they were going in that direction here, though. Yeah. That yeah. I mean, why else would he take her, you know, with him? Ventress actually growls at Batman. Do you think any of his actions are due to the material, or is it just poisonous and not madness-inducing? I think it takes what's already there and heightens it. Okay. That that, that's my thought on yeah. that. Uh, Ventress apparently wrapped the entire car, even the wheels, in the plastic. That's dedication. <laughs> yeah, but how does that work? How does it stay I know, on? I yeah, know. I know. It, it's, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Uh, we get a brief scene with Kimmy reuniting with her mom, so now we can wrap uh, up the, the show with pure action. Mm-hmm. So. She's fine. Now we can do the action. All Batman has to go by are the dust trails Ventrix's car is making. But he leaps onto the top, which that was a leap of faith, literally. Mm-hmm. And what follows is a trippy visual of Batman flying about four feet off the ground through Gotham. Yeah, like this. Oh. Even two guys who may possibly be homeless yeah. on a uh, building stoop, stoop yeah. say, I didn't know he could fly, too. <laughs> it would have been real funny if you'd had... I know you couldn't because of broadcast standards, but if you had been able to have one of them have a brown paper bag, be like, and then throw it away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be good, yeah. 
He takes off a guy's car door, good luck explaining that to the insurance, and hits some gas pumps, and of course they explode. Do gas tanks actually explode that easily? I don't know. I mean, if there's something there to light it, yeah. Right, but... Maybe you know. the spark of it, the metal, uh, I, it could have, yeah. Batman tries to warn Ventress about the suit, but of course he's not hearing it. And, of course, they get on the train trestle and the train's coming at them. Mm-hmm. How did Ventress jump off that train trestle and not die? He doesn't have a grapple gun like Batman. I don't know. And the the train hits the car. How did the train not derail? After hitting That's that what I want to know. Because, I mean, t- you know. It's a car. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean. I don't think a train hitting a car could not, like, I mean, I guess it could not derail. But they were on a trestle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they very possibly could have derailed it. So, uh, Batman takes quite a beating. He wildly swings into a wooden building on the rooftop. And then Ventress pummels him a bit more. I have a problem with this scene. Wow. There's two problems with this scene. Okay. There are several times in Batman and stuff like that on the animated series where he literally closes his eyes and uses his senses to strike out at whatever he's fighting. Why the crap didn't he do that here? Hmm, true. I mean, you know... And there's a, there's an episode called Blind as a Bat where he's blinded and... and that's that's yeah. my point and yeah. how he trained and stuff. It, it shouldn't have been that much of an issue that a two-bit thug got the drop on him and beat the snot out of him. Hmm, good point. Yeah. Good point. I yeah. have a problem with that. I'm sorry. Yeah, and Kevin Conroy grunts more in this episode than George Newberg did in the first season of Justice League. Mm-hmm. Ugh, 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 you know, over and over yeah. again. It's just, uh, Batman perforates the water tower with some bat-throwing stars. My second problem with this. What's that? How freaking long does it take for the stars to go through the air? I know. That was like, they must have, they must have extended that scene for timing or something because it goes... I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a little much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the water makes Ventress appear, and then Conroy delivers the next line perfectly. Peek-a-boo. Yeah, yeah that, that part yeah. I like. <laughs> and punches him right in the face. They let Batman get some licks in on him. It seems a little excessive because you know Batman's way stronger than this guy. Yeah, but still, it's it's worth it. But he just made him look like a chump. Yeah, so. and yeah. I love Batman's closing line to him. Get ready for your biggest disappearing act, Ventress, the one where no one sees you for ten to twenty. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, uh, we get the nice wrap up with Kimberly talking to someone who she claims is Batman and a repeat of her and Helen's discussion about Mojo, but Batman was really there. Although it is kind of weird that he didn't tell Helen he was stopping by, though. The poor woman's been through enough. Right, exactly. You know, at least show up at the door and say, I just wanted to check in on you guys, you know? Or something. But you get the feeling that he has stopped by numerous times mm. to talk to Kimberly. Hey, are you okay? You know, da-da-da. Yeah. You know, doing yeah. doing that kind of thing. So what did you think of this one? I mean, I, I liked it. I mean, I did. Yeah, of course, you knew this. You've yeah, seen this oh, before, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, this is a good one. This isn't anyone's like favorite no. episode, but it's a super solid. Yeah, one. exactly. It's a great premise. It's a great story. It's got great performances. It's just an example of how versatile the show could be. It's a very personal story about a family that happens to cross into sci-fi and Batman's world. It's one of the more eerie episodes as well. Whenever Batman the animated series goes to the suburbs, it gets creepy. House and Garden, anyone? Mm. With Poison Ivy and her family. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. Ugh. Mm. <laughs> I still don't know how they got away with that no. one. We got to cover that yeah, at, some, at point. some point. We got to find some, we'll do Day of the Triffids or something and, and, and cover that one with it or something. Because that is 
Yeah, that is trippy. I mean, and there's a reason Robin's like, no, when those kids come out of the pods and all the, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is just wrong. Yeah, this is a really good one. So that'll wrap things up for this first installment of the House of Frankenstein for 2023. Yeah. A huge shout out, as always, to our friend Terry O'Malley, a.k.a. World Hill Terry, or World Hills Have Eyes Terry, for the House of Frankenstein theme. Follow Terry's band, Stop Calling Me Frank, on their Facebook page. Check the show notes for more info. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, David Capone, and Rocket Dan Johnson, who specifically support our JLU cast, but we'll be thanking them here for the next two months. Yes, yes. Can you guys, like, put the monocane away? We don't need anybody to get into it. No, no, That's bad stuff. And also that plastic that's over there in the corner. Just get rid of it. Yeah. Next time, it's Off to the Himalayas by way of England when we cover one of Hammer Studios' more obscure creature features, but it's a good one because it's got Peter Cushing. Uh Uh-huh. See you then. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at spireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Just sit where you are. I'll get out and take the handbrake off and give you a little shove to help you on. You'll run gently down and through the railings. Then you'll have a big thrill for a hundred yards or so till you hit a boulder. Then you'll do a somersault and probably break your arms. Then a grand finish up with a broken neck. Well, goodbye, Kemp. I always said you were a dirty little coward. You're a dirty, sneaking little rat as well. Goodbye.